This podcast is brought to you by Brunner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbrunner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you, too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. From professional mixed martial artist and UFC fighter to international missionary and social activist, my guest today has gone from fighting people to fighting for them. Justin Wren knows what it feels like to be wronged and has dedicated his life to making a positive impact, finding his calling deep in the rainforest of the Congo. Beyond his impressive MMA career, Justin is a motivational speaker, author, and founder of Fight for the Forgotten. Justin, welcome to my podcast. It's such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. Wow, thank you. Your smile, I've been with you in person and it always brightens the room. So it's doing that even virtually. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Uh, Thank you so much for saying that. Well, for anyone who has followed professional cage fighting in the MMA, your name (laughs) probably sounds very familiar to them. You were on a hit reality TV series. You made it to the ultimate fighting championship, which I guess is the pinnacle of that. You had a record of something like 13 and 2, but you need to explain, I think, to some of our listeners what exactly MMA is, because there are going to be people who don't know, and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, most people know it as the UFC or mixed martial arts or actually cage fighting. I love it because for me, it was the purest form, I think, of like a human chess match. At least that's how I think of it. There's like Mm. the marathon, and then there's like the Greco-Roman Olympics that were kind of the first two sports in the Olympics. For me, it's combining the sports of wrestling and jiu-jitsu and judo and kickboxing and boxing. They call boxing the sweet science, and that's just one art form. You know, that's just two punches coming at you. But whenever elbows are in there, knees and kicks, but then whenever someone's kicking you and you got they got to be worried about uh, you taking them down, it's very strategic. So it's not a barroom brawl. I remember I lived at the Olympic Training Center. I was a national champion of wrestling. We would train two times a day, five days a week. Sometimes we'd have a sixth day where we'd do one like long run. In MMA, we're training six and seven days a week, two or three times a day. And all the different disciplines, plus the physical therapy and uh, the conditioning and strength and the sauna and the ice baths and all of it. So we (laughs) really have to be on point. And that's what I love about the other people that I get in there with. One of the guys that actually bought my first round trip ticket to Africa, to the Congo, I had actually knocked him out and he was one of my opponents. We connected during the fight and after the fight and with his wife. It was just unique because you know this human being in a a way that's so different than anyone else knows him or that they know me. For me, it's a cool sport. It's it's fun. I do want to go back to your childhood before we get to the Congo. (laughs) You were, you know, 13 years old. This was like a childhood dream of yours. You're watching these videos secretly in your room. What did your parents say when they found out about it? I mean, did they think you were doing something illicit in there or what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my dad did. 
My dad thought okay. it was a stack of Triple uh, X videos. And he even told my mom, I kind of wish it was that because he's going to try to do this someday. And my mom's like, no, he's not. Calm down. Mm -hmm. He's never going to try this. And then for my second or third fight, I had a surprise. It was my mom's birthday. And I was supposed to be coaching. And instead, I, I upgraded. Uh, since I stepped in for an injured fighter, I had her and my dad on the front row. And she was like, oh, my gosh, you were right. He was going to do this. And so <laughs> before they started the fight, the referee looks at me, says, are you ready? And I give him the head nod. He looks over at my opponent. And I look over at my opponent, but he's not looking at me. He's looking at his coaches for last minute advice. When I looked over his coach's head, there's my mom's head. She's crying in my dad's, uh, on my dad's shoulder. And I'm like, oh no. Then I hear fight. And so that was one of my quickest fights because I just wanted to get out of there, go hug my mom <laughs> and show her I'm okay. I can't even imagine what your mom was going through back then. <laughs> What's interesting is how you kind of got from that sort of dream, if you will, of the cage fighting you got into wrestling and you, you talked about the fact in your book, you really were bullied and you were taunted, you were made fun of, you even felt like you were an outcast growing up. And it was wrestling that kind of saved you. But this yeah. was like high school wrestling. So what did wrestling give you? Because you ended up becoming the state wrestling champion, I think at age 15. But what did wrestling give you? I think it gave me hope and it gave me friendship, a sense of belonging to a team so community, but it also gave me an outlet, a healthy outlet. I was downward spiraling. At 12 years old, I lost a friend named Landon and Landon took his life and he was bullied as well. And that is kind of what planted the seed in my head after the bullying moment where these same kids that bullied me also lost Landon at school. And so mm -hmm. whenever the bullying moment happened and they said, you're not good enough to come to my party. You're worthless. You should just kill yourself. You know, I took that on as like my own self-talk for decades. I would say that whenever I found wrestling, my parents moved me out of that school after that moment. Yeah. And it was one of the best things they could have done for me. And they sacrificed a lot. They sent me 67 miles away from the next school I went to so I could wrestle under two Olympic gold medalists. And I learned discipline with my mom. She was getting up before the sun was up and driving me to across Fort Worth, Arlington, and Dallas traffic to get me just so I could wrestle with some Olympic gold medalists. And so I got mentorship out of the sport, friendship, and I discovered goals and dreams for the first time. Well, we're going to fast forward now. So you're out sure. of high school. You're living out your dream of cage fighting. You go into this match, this first match. You really didn't have any MMA training. You win. You know, and you're 6'3", 250, you have this Nordic look about you and you're nicknamed the Viking. What you talk about too is how everyone wanted to party with the fighters and you were right along with them. I would say there I felt acceptance because if I compared to that party, I was just talking about where I really wasn't invited or as invited just as the laughing stock. Now, when I was getting my hand raised, I was actually getting a, a real invitation to the party. Or it was my after party and I was getting to invite people to come to my. And so whenever the drinking and the drugs were there, I think those really popped off one after a surgery, but the other recreational drugs besides like the pain pills really started more whenever I would get my hand raised in the cage yeah. and I would literally have the thought in my mind, is this it? Is that all? It felt empty. It was a shallow victory. Like wrestling did it. Fighting did it for a little bit, but I just always knew there was something more that, at least for me and my journey, my path, 
in my heart, like there was a bigger fight. You got severely injured. You talk about the pain pills and by your own admission, you say you became a drug addict. And it's so interesting to me because I've talked with other professional athletes who have had addictions, whether it's drugs or alcohol, the combination of both. And I get why it happens sometimes, but how do you balance these two things? Because you kind of have them both going on at the same time. Oh, yeah. How do you live like that? Well, there was a point where there was zero balance. For a little while, I was, I was pretty good at hiding it. I'm winning and I'm, and I'm using and I'm sneaking drugs into the Ultimate Fighter TV show in an antibiotics bottle. It's Oxycontin. At the beginning, I was able to sober up for maybe eight weeks or 12 weeks before the fight. And then it yeah. shrunk down to like six weeks, four weeks, two weeks until I was using the day before the fight, needing to use right after the fight because of being chemically dependent or physically dependent on it to where I would start getting the shakes and withdrawals and getting sick. I needed it. You mentioned a moment ago that you started feeling empty and you talk about one night that you decide you're going to kill yourself. And I think you drank a bottle of Everclear and whatever else, but you didn't happen. You woke up the next day and you were alive. Is that the point where you decide I need to change my life? It was the beginning of it. I would say after that suicide attempt, I went to a gentleman's house and he started Project Cure. Project Cure, the founder, was our first donor of Fight for the Forgotten. But this was before I even knew anything about the nonprofit world. And when I had a dream and a vision, I told him and he was our first donor. Whenever I heard what he did with his life, what their family legacy was, it just was like, I'm either going to go down in a ball of fire and do this again, or I'm going to get as fired up as this guy about something in my life too. What I think is so interesting too, and you just mentioned it a moment ago, is the vision that you had because you decide to change your life. You go to this men's spiritual retreat. You're in a better place spiritually, but you're still backfighting. You're kind of around those old habits still, but you now have this profound vision that has such a powerful impact on your life. What was that vision? Share that with us. I had started volunteering at the Denver Children's Hospital and the rescue mission for the homeless and at-risk youth group. That was kind of the year trying to build back my life and sobriety, but also a new foundation and I don't know. It was so good, but it was also direct, not directionless. It just was kind of shotgunned instead of like a narrow focus, like looking through a scope as a sniper, like on a bullseye looking for that target. Mm -hmm. So I basically just said a prayer, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And when I did, it was more real than any movie I've ever watched or, or visualization drill I did with any sports psychologist or Olympic gold medalist. And it was me in the rainforest. I was walking down a footpath and I was clearing vines and thickets out of the way. And I heard drumming. I keep walking. I hear singing. I keep walking. I come into a clearing. And I see these twig and leaf huts. I meet these people. And we don't communicate, but I, I know that they're hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, oppressed, that they're facing poverty and that they call someone else master or that they're enslaved. And I just felt like they felt forgotten, like they're the forgotten people. And I came out of that vision and I, I was, I just cried a, a small little, I would call it a little puddle. And I didn't know who they were, where they were. I was hyperventilating, crying. I've never cried like that at a funeral. All of the funerals combined probably. And I felt a little crazy for about three days. I felt crazy. And then I got confirmation that the vision was real. And about, I don't know, three and a half weeks later, something like that, like a hundred percent of the vision came true. Yeah. You literally, you go to the Congo. Yeah. And you're deep in the rainforest and you learn about the Mabuti Pygmies, 
What did you discover when you got there about them? Um, they're incredible. They're amazing. They are the closest thing I've ever experienced to, I guess you could put it as original man, like who, who we are at our core, um, yeah. at the essence of our being and our DNA, whether it's the hunter-gatherer aspect or just the community, or I think there's even literal statistics. I think it might be in The Guardian that says the best fathers in the world. It's mm -hmm. the pygmy people. They hold their children more than 50% of the time, like infants. It's very rare. And so I saw these like fathers that help and, and just, just like a beautiful expression of life. While I was witnessing that, I was witnessing the oppression. It was like, how are these most amazing people able to live through this? Um, not having clean water, calling someone master, being called animals, literally being sometimes killed and enslaved and all sorts of terrible things. That was a mind warp. I never experienced anything like that in my life. On the last day, the confirmation for me of that vision, like I had written the vision down. I had told Caleb and my friend Colin, they know that 100% of the vision came true. They're so excited because I had this like almost miraculous sign, like something extraordinary uh, happening. And I'm confused. I know it happened, but it's so surreal that I'm like, does stuff like this in life happen? Can it happen? And it did happen, but I'm still asking, can that happen? Caleb goes, what are you going to do? So what do you mean? What am I going to do? The visual I got was trying to, the oppression was so big. I could spend my whole life trying to help. And it's not my culture, my context. I'm just a fighter. I don't know how to do land, water, or food initiatives or housing or education or healthcare, how to help people find something like, or actual freedom from oppressors. I'm like, what do you mean? What am I going to do? I can spend my whole life. And it's like trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper. Would anyone even notice what I notice? Would they notice? Does it matter? Would it matter? I remember Caleb just told me, yeah, but the wrong perspective, brother, like <laughs> every single one of those drops symbolizes a human heart, a human life, a person's name. So yeah, every drop matters. I told him, I don't know. I just need one more sign. He goes, you're crazy. What do you mean another sign? And I think he was actually frustrated, or I know he was, because he hasn't been back. And he's been doing incredible work for over a decade. And he goes, dude, I brought you here just because you needed to be here. Shortly after, I think it was the next day, the chief came up to us and said, hey, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. And when he said forgotten, that was the top of the piece of paper that I wrote the vision down on, said the forgotten. I was just like, light bulb moment. I start tearing up. And he said, we don't have a voice. Can you? help us have one. He didn't ask Caleb. He didn't ask Colin. It was him and his elders asking me. And that was the one thing that, and actually that's what I told Caleb. I go, I just need one thing I can do. Land, water, food, education, healthcare, like all this stuff. How can I do any of that? He gave me the one thing that I knew I could do, whether it's from fighting and getting the microphone or being an American and having free speech, you know, having friends with podcasts like you, Liz, being able to share their story. So that was a yes. But it was like my soul screamed yes. Like I told him verbally, like, yes, while I'm tearing up and wiping tears. That was my one thing that was like, okay, if I get it, I'm all in. I'm all in, Caleb. And I got it. And so then it was, okay, that's what we're going to do for the rest of my life. Well, you know what's so interesting about that? Because I'm such a firm believer in asking the universe for a sign. Yeah. And, and when you get it, you're kind of like, what? What? <laughs> I really got it. <laughs> and you certainly did. 
and you choose to live among them and you literally fall in love with these wonderful people and they've never seen anyone who looked like you, which I think is so much fun. Your missions to the Congo are chronicled in your amazing book, which is titled Fight for the Forgotten, How a Mixed Martial Artist Stopped Fighting for Himself and Started Fighting for Others. And in it, you write that it, it's always a bit of a culture shock for you when you come back to the United States from having been there. And it's like 10 times harder to sort of return to your own home culture than it is to acclimate to theirs. Most people would think it would be the other way around. What's the shock in coming home for you? Yeah, because people don't get it. But sometimes I really need a few days or a week or more when I get back. And it's not mm -hmm. just jet lag. It's like, okay, I'm back around people that I love. Um, that are incredible, that have very real problems of their own. But I think we can make stuff so much bigger here because I think humans, since the dawn of time, we've had to struggle and survive. And now we're in the most comfortable culture. If you're in the US and the Western world, you're living the most comfortable time on earth. I would come back and it would be hard because I would see a mother and a daughter fighting over one drinking sugar water, right? Like Coca-Cola and getting grounded and um, them saying, I hate you over like this little bickering and fight. Those two people were with a missions group and they were going to Haiti. And I was just like, y'all are about to get your worlds rocked, rocked. Because maybe less than a week before that, I held a young boy named Andy Bo in my hands that died. I bought his sho the shovel. I bought his casket. I helped dig the grave. I dug most of it. And he died of dirty water. Coming back, like there, I don't know, people suffer together and celebrate together and love each other and sing and dance almost every single day together. Whether there's something to celebrate or not, it's like they're alive. We're alive. Yeah. And that's one of their most beautiful prayers is almost every morning, like when you eat with someone and it's not necessarily a religious thing. You say thank you for today. Like we, we made it. Sometimes they've said literally things like we made it. Like, remember those who didn't make it today. And it's like, wow. You have launched your fight for the forgotten, which is a nonprofit. And I know you do great work in building wells and farmland and all kinds of things to help these wonderful indigenous people. But you also share some of the atrocities that you witnessed and the challenges that you faced. And one of them was even that you were nearly killed by malaria. Wow, that story was unbelievable. What do you remember about that time? I lost 33 pounds in five days. Oof. And not this last time, but the first time. And I had something called black water fever, which I think if you Google the mortality rate of black water fever, it's anywhere from 25 to 50%. One in two people die that get it. And sometimes it's higher than that. Um, so I was on death's door. Uh, my veins were collapsing. They couldn't get the medicine in me through IVs. They were trying on my hands, my arms, my feet, my legs, and I was vomiting red and green. So it was blood and bile. My peripheral vision disappeared. I was like tunnel vision. My fever would spike to over 104 and, and then down to like 96. It felt like I was on a rocking ship in like 12 foot waves, but it'd be like, I'm in a sauna and then I'm in a, an igloo. And it was, uh, it was the craziest feeling. You must have been terrified and, and worried that you might die from this thing because it is so serious and it took so long to really officially diagnose what the heck you actually had. Yeah, that's true, but I'm not trying to sound courageous or better than anyone else. It was, it was really strange because I went back to that vision. I had a vision that came true, and if this is where it ends, this is where it ends, but like I don't think it is. 
because I had a satellite phone that I could point up to the sky and I called my mom and let her know I had malaria through the rainforest. And she's like, we're going to evac you out of there and you got to come <laughs> home to great doctors. I was like, well, no, I don't. Uh, I go, I love you. Thank you so much for caring about me. But like these doctors know how to treat malaria. Ours don't. I'm here for a reason and a purpose. Like you can say a prayer for me. You can send me love. But um, she's like, why, why would you stay? Because this is what they go through all the time. And now I have more of an understanding. Mm. It's one thing to read about it or hear about it. It might go in one ear and out the other. You might forget about it. When you see it, it really sticks. But whenever you live it or feel it, like now mm. you've kind of had an opportunity to, to digest it and let it sink in and soak it up and understand in a way that it is compassion over uh, sympathy or empathy over sympathy. So many of the illnesses are a result of them not having clean water and you and your nonprofit do help build these water wells and in fact built one of the first ones in the history for the Mbuti Pygmy people. That had to have been a profound day. And I think one of the things that you wrote about was that that was the first day that they were seen as people as opposed to being animals. I find that absolutely striking. That was sort of a launching point for them. If I share this with people in our context, sometimes it's really hard to wrap our minds around, right? But I have to remind people that we did it a hundred years ago to a Mabuti pygmy from Mombasa, that was basically the area that I lived in. We took a man and put him in the, the Bronx Zoo. His name's Otabinga. We put him in the Bronx Zoo, fed him bananas in the monkey house. And we oh. said he was half man, half animal. He was part monkey. I mean, living with hunter-gatherers, with bows and arrows, it can feel like you've gone back in time a little bit. So they're catching up in certain ways. And they're also way more advanced in other ways. And in many ways, it's relationships and, and love and all that. The moments of celebrating, I've been very fortunate to have great seats at the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals and UFC 100, 200, the Manny Pacquiao fights, like the biggest sporting events in the world. One small community getting access to clean water, those yeah. cheers drown out any stadium. They say it's a victory over death. It's a victory in life. It's a victory of life in the life of their children, their families, their future. Those moments light me up. I've danced with them. And, and one of the funny things is I went to a very, uh, grew up in a conservative household, went to some schools that didn't allow dancing. That's where like I kind of came alive. Now I love to dance. And it, it started <laughs> around a fire in the rainforest <laughs> with this hunter-gatherer tribe with the most incredible people. Might be dancing after they get like an antelope in the rainforest. It might be dancing for a birth that just happened. It might be dancing for clean water. And when they got clean water, that was the most epic celebration of my entire life. We danced until the sun came up. I crawled into the hut with my cheeks hurting and falling asleep on the dirt, turning the dirt muddy from my sweat. And normally I would never be able to sleep that way, but like I just fell asleep with a smile still on my face. Oh, amazing. And it was, it was incredible. How, how much does it cost to dig a well in the Congo? It depends. So we do it in Congo and in Uganda. The pygmy people live on both sides. It's the Batwa on the Uganda side and the Maputi and the FA in the Congo. We've scaled it up a bit. It can cost around 10 grand up to 20, so 10 to 20 grand, depending on what we do. We're about to do a $100,000 water reservoir 
our first water reservoir ever. And we're doing that with the founder of Engineers Without Borders and this other incredible architect and uh, the guy that's lived in Uganda for over 20 years. I can't wait for that because it's going to, they need it in the mountain. It's going to be gravity fed throughout the community, but we need a reservoir to serve the entire community. They had never had clean water. They were literally rock climbing to get it from a spring and people had fallen and died. People had fallen and broken their backs and their legs. And I did that water walk with them. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was harder than me climbing Mount Kilimanjaro going on that water walk. And now they're getting access to clean water. It's amazing. Well, you share so many wonderful stories in your book, including about the corruption, the atrocities and things like that. But you also write that God had chosen the pygmies for me to love. And you call them your second family and they loved you right back, Justin. And even one family naming their baby boy after you. But there's one conversation that I was laughing out loud, which is about if you were to marry a pygmy, what would it cost you? (laughs) Do you remember? Yes, yes, I absolutely remember. I was talking with Bajanji, Bailanja, Leole, I think Sangule, and maybe Papa Londo. We were sitting around the fire and <laughs> I'd asked them because everybody else does the dowry. It's goats and, and cows and 12 of them or different things like that. And they go, oh, no, no, that's not our culture. If you wanted to get married and you fell in love, what you would do is you would go to her brother. I thought that he was going to ask for, you ask the brother for the blessing instead of the father. And instead, what you do is you bring that brother, your sister, and it's a sister exchange. And I was like, what? That's that's wild. How in the world do you do that? And then I thought about it. I go, oh, wow. My mom had complications. I'm the only child. So I told him that. You know, what would I do? I don't have a sister. I don't have a brother or a sister. And they start scratching their heads and thinking about it, talking with each other. And they said, okay, you'd bring us your cousin. And I started laughing. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, oh, wow, my female cousins are married. So what would I do now? They're already taken. They started scratching their heads. And I see someone going, Billy, Billy, Billy. And they are doing the peace sign or number two. He goes, we'll take two chickens. <laughs> and uh, that's when I lost it. I, that was one of my... Not my only time, but one of my first times, like rolling on the floor, rolling on the dirt, laughing. Well, it had me laughing when I was reading it. You did such a great job of describing it. They gave you two nicknames. What are the two nicknames? Because I'm going to butcher them if I try and say them. (laughs) I've got probably four now, but it's um, Olangama, Efeosa, Mabutamang. Olangama is the new one. I'm named after the king's father. It basically means lost but found, or that I was in the forest, I got lost and was found. But the two that I really treasure is that Efeosa means the man who loves us. Yeah. And that one was the first one they gave me. And that was after Andy Bo, after burying him and mourning with him. And it was kind of a invitation, like, am I going to be that guy or not? And what would that guy do? The other one is Mabutimangbo. And so Mabutimangbo <laughs> means the big pygmy. I used to be the Viking in fighting, uh, but since they call me the Big Pygmy, I champion and rally around that name. And uh, whenever people go, what does that mean? And what's that for? I get to tell them their story. Justin, as you look back over your life and my goodness, all the twists and the turns that have led you to this place now, what are you most surprised about? The the vision was a, a huge surprise, and it's still a surprise because whenever I remember back to it, it's so vivid. And then whenever I flash forward to it actually happening, it was identical. 
a most surreal moment of my life. But I think another surprise to me was I relapsed and I had to go to treatment, not once, but twice. And I was surprised that I could fall back into that dark of a place that quick. But what I realized, purpose led me out of that dark place the first time. It, it was purpose through service, but I was still neglecting my own wounds and trauma from the past. And so I think I'm, I'm honestly surprised that the freedom I found now by deciding to love myself like my life depends on it, because it does. And if I can encourage anyone listening to this, like you must, you can, you have to, and you must love yourself like your life depends on it because it actually does. If you don't think your physical life depends on it, like minded and addiction or depression and suicide, I've survived suicide not once, but twice now. It's pretty remarkable. I was surprised that second time because the doctor said it was 100% a lethal cocktail, 100%. And I took off to Mexico with a one-way ticket without a plan to come back. You know, I had all the purpose in the world. Why couldn't I stay sober? Why why'd I fall back into it? I felt so much shame and guilt and everything else. What I realized was I actually have PTSD. I do have the brain of an addict and alcoholic, and I didn't get the training or the tools, tactics, techniques for the biggest fight of my life, which was my mental health and addiction. And so now that I've gone and sought out the best experts in the world, and sometimes the best experts aren't just the books that I have on my bookshelf, it's the experts that have been there, that have been sick and gotten well, that have been homeless, and yet made a recovery and have a beautiful life now. I learned from those people that have walked through tougher paths than I have. I would say that's been a surprise is like, now I feel like I, it's clicked. I got it. I got to love me and I got to face it all, feel it all. Cause that's where the magic happens. And if I do that, if I stay connected to that source of love, I keep pouring that love out. But if I allow some of it to at least not just bypass through me or around me, but accept some of it for myself, then you can have it all. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sending you tons of love right now. Thank <laughs> from you. this end. <laughs> Did I? Folks, I invite you to please check out Justin's nonprofit website, which is fightfortheforgotten.org. And you can learn more about the great work that they are doing. And please read Justin's book too. It is so powerful. We'll have the links for you on all of that in our show notes. Justin, you have turned your life around couple of times now, it sounds like, and you are a shining light on what it means to go from fighting people to fighting for them, to empowering the voiceless all around the world. You are truly a gift to them and you're a gift to all of us as well. And I'm so appreciative that you joined me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I say thank you to all of you for tuning in. Know that each and every single one of us can make a difference in the world simply by showing kindness and yes, love two things that are sorely needed in every nook and cranny on planet Earth. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.